Well, good morning to you all. If you're new, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my distinct honor this morning to invite you to open your Bible to, as you can see from the sign behind me, the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we are going to be um, starting a new series this morning. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, um, you're welcome to go ahead and uh, grab one from under the chair in front of you. There should be a black one there. And uh, 2 Corinthians, if you're not familiar with how the Bible works, 2 Corinthians is found on page 964 of that chair Bible. We're starting a new series in this book. We're going to begin working verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're calling the series By Faith, Not By Sight. And Lord willing, we'll spend around seven months or so in this book and um, uh, work our way toward uh, the fall time of the year. So if you're there, we're going to read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians. This morning is going to be mostly an introduction to this book, uh, the occasion that kind of set things up for it. I'll read these three verses and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Would you pray with me? Father, come now. Send your Holy Spirit into this place to fill our hearts, to open our eyes, to deepen our love, in order that we might see Jesus here in this text in order that we might be moved in our affections to love Him, to serve Him in faithfulness. Lord, give me grace this morning as I seek to teach this text to Your precious people, those You spilled the blood of Your Son to save. Build us up this morning through Your Word, by Your Spirit, for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's been said that Americans think a hundred years is a long time, while English people think a hundred miles is a long way. This means that Americans will sometimes drive a hundred miles to have a good steak dinner, and also think that World War I was a really long time ago. Whereas in England, you could drive a hundred miles and you'd be, you'd be speaking a different language. Yet you can have a drink in a pub in England that's been open for 1,500 years. Americans easily forget that we are relative newcomers onto the world scene. We're not even 250 years old compared to societies like China and Greece. We are still in diapers. And for this reason, we should have no trouble relating with the church at Corinth. Like many of our cities and towns, Corinth was a new city. 
well, kind of new city. Corinth existed as a Greek port town for a long, long time, but about 150 years before Jesus was born, the Romans came in and totally destroyed the town. And Corinth sat unoccupied and in ashes for about 100 years until Julius Caesar rebuilt her in 44 BC. By the time the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, the city was about 80 years old and and, and had about 80,000 people in it. And Corinth was a a cool, hip, new town, a first century boom town. And because it was so young, there was no settled aristocracy. Most of her residents were either immigrants or economic opportunists. You moved to Corinth to get rich. It was the Silicon Valley of the first century. And so... In Corinth, wealth became the way to um, ascendancy, to garnering respect for yourself. It was a pull-yourself-up kind of town, a a work-hard, a a startup kind of town. Corinth also had a booming industry for sports and for entertainment. They had a theater in Corinth that could seat up to 18,000 people in the first century. They had a concert hall which seated 3,000 people. They were host to the Isthmian Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games in popularity. So they had games featuring chariot races and MMA-style fighting and wrestling and boxing, along with music and poetry contests. This is a culturally diverse, economically prosperous town. And due to the rich diversity in Corinth... It was also religiously pluralistic. There were temples spattered all over the town to various types of gods, whatever suited the worshippers' wants and needs. Corinth was host to the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. The Corinthians gained a reputation for being wasteful and immoral. In fact, the phrase, to Corinthian eyes, was synonymous with loose living. In Acts chapter 18, we learn of how the church at Corinth got her start. And so, if, if you want to, you can keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. Turn backwards in your Bible to the book of, of Acts. Acts chapter 18. Which, if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 927. I'm going to read, I don't know, 11 verses or so. And this is the background. This is a foundation of the church at Corinth. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one can attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So about 50 AD, the Apostle Paul travels to Corinth, and he meets the Jewish couple. We just read about them, Aquila and Priscilla. They were recently kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius, who blamed the Jews for some trouble going on there. And Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers, which is what Paul were. They were also followers of Jesus, which is what Paul was. And so they made fast friends. Now, it was Paul's custom whenever he would go into a town, he would go straight to the synagogue. That's where people were interested in the things of God. And he would talk to the Jews in the synagogue about Jesus Christ as the Messiah of God. Well, the Jews in Corinth didn't much care for this message from Paul, and they rejected Paul. So Paul turned away from the Jews, and he turned to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And a couple of people came to faith by Paul's preaching. One was a Roman fellow named Titius Justus, who lived next door to the synagogue. Another was Crispus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, which is sort of like um, the church custodian. So the core team in Corinth, at the church plant in Corinth, was Paul, a renegade Jew, two exiles from Rome, a church janitor, and some guy who lived next door. As they began to meet, Paul would preach Jesus. People would come to faith. The Lord built the church. Many of the Corinthians believed and were baptized into the Corinthian church. As the church grew in number, it seems that Paul became nervous about the exposure that they were getting. And so the Lord came to Paul in a vision and said, don't be afraid. Stay in Corinth. Keep preaching the gospel. I'll protect you. There's many people in this town that I'm going to bring to this church. And so Paul was obedient to the Lord and he remained in Corinth for a year and a half. This began the long and storied history of the old apostle and his beloved Corinthian church. Paul would eventually write several letters to the Corinthian church. He would visit them three, maybe four times. And as we read in the opening words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we see a little of that storied history implicit in his greeting. So go back to 2 Corinthians. Let's take a close look at the opening lines of this letter. The apostle writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now, I think you should know, in the Bible, the letter that is called 2 Corinthians um, is not actually the 2 Corinthian letter. When you read the Corinthian letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, closely, you'll learn that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. You see, from the details in these letters, we know that Paul wrote one letter to the church at Corinth before 1 Corinthians, and he wrote another letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So he wrote at least four letters to this church, the first of which and the third of which have been lost to history. Let me explain what's been going on here. 
So as we just read in Acts 18, Paul helps to establish the church in Corinth, and he stays there for a year and a half. And once the church is established, once leadership has been in place, there's elders leading the church, the people are together in a meaningful membership, Paul leaves that town. He takes Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he goes to Ephesus. And while Paul's in Ephesus, he writes his first letter to the church at Corinth, and he encourages them in holiness and purity. You see that Corinth was a sexually immoral town, and sin was creeping its way into the congregation, and so the apostle writes a letter to them telling them, do not associate with sexually immoral people. Well, they must have misunderstood Paul, because he meant do not associate with sexually immoral people who also claim to be Christians. But they took him to mean, don't associate with anyone who is sexually immoral. And they were withdrawing from society. Some even went all in and banned sex altogether, banned marriage altogether. Besides that, there were divisions in the church, people arguing with one another, if you can imagine that. One dude's sleeping with his dad's wife, which is just gross. Preferential treatment is being given to the rich. There are problems with the Lord's Supper. There are abuses of the spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church is is a mess. So the Corinthian church writes a letter to Paul asking him questions. And Paul writes back. Paul's response is the letter that you and I know as 1 Corinthians. Then Paul sends young Pastor Timothy to Corinth to see how they were getting on, to see how his letter was received by them. Were were they making the adjustments and changes? Were they repenting of some of these sins? Timothy reports back to Paul, bad news. It seems things have not improved. In fact, they may have gotten worse. So Paul changes his plans, and he makes a short, unscheduled visit to the people in Corinth. Paul calls it a painful visit, and his painful visit did not go well. The Corinthians had come under some false teaching. Uh, They had given in to the spirit of the age. Remember, Corinth is all about wealth, power, peacocking. And the false apostles swooped into the church and they deceived the people there with their eloquence and their flashy rhetoric and impressive resumes and charismatic personalities. And so when Paul comes to bring correction, they accuse Paul of being inferior to these other apostles. He's weak and timid. These false teachers are magnetic. But Paul's not a great speaker. He's known to be short and bald and unimpressive. You can see why someone like me would like him. And during this unscheduled visit, the Corinthian church openly opposed Paul. They rejected his apostolic authority. And he leaves Corinth 
disappointed, rejected, failing to bring his beloved Corinthian people to repentance. After that painful visit, Paul writes a letter to them. He calls it a severe letter. It's very direct, very severe in its tone. Paul even admits that it pained him to write that letter. He sends that letter with Titus, who goes to Corinth, delivers the letter. And then Titus returns to Paul. And thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit used Paul's severe letter to bring the Corinthian people to repentance. And so then Paul writes them his fourth letter. And that is the letter that we begin studying today, the second Corinthian letter. And it's among the most tender, pastoral, transparent of the apostles' writings. It represents a decade-long history of a church in trouble and her apostle who wouldn't give up on her. There are layers of emotional sentiment behind every word in this precious letter. Think of it like listening in on a conversation between old friends. The friendship that's endured heartbreak, misunderstanding, even the occasional rebuke. Each phrase in this epistle is dripping with meaning. Notice here in the opening, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. There are tears behind that phrase. There's heartbreak behind that phrase, by the will of God. Well, this isn't just a conversation between friends. This is Scripture. So alongside Paul's heart for his dear Corinthian church, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the 21st century. And like them, we are hoping to serve the Lord in faithfulness in a society that favors wealth and startups. In a world that's attracted by the flashy and impressed by and attracted to power. And like theirs, ours is a society that preaches to each his own kind of spirituality. And like the Corinthian believers, we too are a marginalized people on the outskirts of a society drunken with its own immorality. We also are at risk of being drawn in by the strong and the showy. We're at risk of being allured by the charm of power. Like the Corinthians, we are also a people easily given to division, to reject authority, to give preferential treatment to charismatic people, or people with power, or people with money. So the old apostles' words to the Corinthians are for us too. 
We also need to be disenchanted with the spirit of the age. We need to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We need to learn that it's God's strength that's made perfect in our weakness. We need to learn that our only boast is in our frailty and in our limitations. I will not boast in anything. We just sang it. We need to learn that our boast is not in who we are, but who we aren't. Not in what we do, but what we can't do. Not in what we know, but what we don't know. For this reason, we need 2 Corinthians. And so can I just encourage you to give yourself to this precious letter for the next seven months. To reading it and to rereading it and to marinating your heart in it. To soaking in these words from the Lord Jesus Christ to his precious church. Let's keep reading. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After such a storied history, I think it's significant that Paul calls the Corinthian church a church of God. He's not labeled them the once faithful but now apostate church. Despite their troubles, despite their issues, they are a church of God. Paul has not given up on them. And most importantly, God, God has not given up on them. Cornerstone, know this. God is not done with you. If you are drawing breath this very morning, God has not given up on you. In Christ, you are not a disappointment to Him. He paid the ultimate price to make you His own, to adopt you into His family. When you fail, run to Him, turn to Him, and I promise you, you will find Him there with open arms, ready to receive you again, ready to forgive you of your sins, ready to reaffirm His love for you. He won't give up on the Corinthian church. He won't give up on you. To that point in verse 2, he calls them saints. In the original language, that means holy ones. Holy ones. How significant that little word, saints. These Corinthians, as troubled as they are, as sinful as they are, yet trusting in Christ, are holy ones. How important is it for all of us to remember that we are not holy because of what we do for God. We are holy because of what God has done for us. Righteousness does not come by obeying God's law, but by depending on God's Son. Friend, if you are a guest with us today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you pick the perfect day to come to church. This message is for you 
Turn from your sin. Depend on Jesus. Find peace with God through Him, through His cross. And I want you to know that no one in this room, no Christian anywhere, is better than you. We were all once where you are right now, seeking on our own to be good, to prove ourselves to be a good person. And yet God saved us, not because of something good in us, but because of everything good in Jesus. I know that God will forgive you of your sins no matter what they are, because I know that God has forgiven me of mine. Turn to Him today. And when you do, tell someone here about it. These are my friends, and I know that they'd be happy to spend some time with you this week talking to you about how to follow Jesus. Well, I hope you see the significance of Paul's greeting when he says, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice where grace and peace is coming from. Grace and peace does not come from within us. Grace and peace does not come to your life when you find the ideal circumstances. Grace and peace comes from one place and one place alone, and that's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Here Paul reveals God in three ways. First, that God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, God is the Father of mercies. And third, God is a God of all comfort. This is a masterful stroke of pastoral genius. The first thing Paul does with his beloved Corinthians is to show them who God is. More than anything else, this is what they need. They need to know who God is. It's the same with us. More than you need to know who you are, you need to know who God is. When you're given into a sin, when you need correction or discipline, the first thing you need to know is who God is. Train yourself as best as you can to think this way. Sin is effectively, essentially, just turning away from, from the truth about who God is. Sin is turning away from God. I mean, think back to the garden. Eve is being tempted by the serpent. And the enemy's tactic there with her is the same as it is today. It's to question the goodness of God. You understand that God had created Adam and Eve in a paradise. Filled with more than they would ever need to live a thousand lifetimes. And yet when the enemy comes to tempt her, he causes her to shift away from all that God has provided for her. And to look at just the one thing that she can't have. Eve, God's holding out on you. Eve, there's something here that's good that God doesn't want you to have. He's not really as good as you think He is. He doesn't want you to have this, Eve. Well, like Eve, we also 
are tempted to be drawn away from God, to go seek after something, to provide us something that God has already provided for us. And so we lash out in anger because we are the kind of person who has to be heard. Because we forget about who God is. The kind of God who has already heard us. The God who already knows us. The one whose opinion matters most. Or we seek unhealthy relationships with someone because we want to be wanted. We want to be the kind of person that someone wants. Because we forget who God is. The God who spent the life of his own son because he wanted us. We refuse to forgive because, well, we can't be seen as a pushover. What if they do it again? They got to be paid back for what they did. And we forget that we are precisely who we are because God did not make us pay him back for what we did. We forget Jesus was a pushover for our sake. We're impatient with young Christians because, well, we forget about the patience of God toward us, don't we? If we're stingy with our time or with our money, it's simply because we forget that God is our provider. We're not the one actually making the money. God is providing for us. We forget that Jesus gave up everything in order to give us everything and that we can never run out. Sin is fundamentally neglecting to see who God is and turning to something else instead of Him to get what we think we need. Well, Paul knows best that the way to help his beloved Corinthians is to show them who God is. And so he reveals God as the Father of mercies. Did you notice that we're less than three verses into this letter and Paul has already revealed God as a Father three times? Why do you suppose that is? Paul would have them know that God is loving, that God is caring, that God is patient, that He is kind, that, yeah, they've made mistakes. They've given in to sin. And yet God is the Father of mercies. Mercy means that He's not going to act with them once they've repented of their sin. He's not going to interact with them based on that sin any longer. He doesn't hold a grudge. You may not have had a father like this. Your father may have been unkind, uncaring, uninvolved. Your father may have been exacting and demanding and distant. Well, you need to know that your heavenly father is not like that at all. God, the Father, is compassionate and tender. He's loving. He's not unpredictable. You don't have to worry that He's going to just explode on you with judgment at any moment. You don't have to walk on eggshells around Him. No, the Bible says this about who God is. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You may have grown up with a father who, maybe he accepted your apology when you did wrong, but he always held out a grudge against you. And you need to know God is not like that. When you say, Father, forgive me, beloved, you're forgiven. Always and forever. Notice Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. Not only is God the kind of God who shows mercy to undeserving sinners like us, He goes beyond that. And He shows us comfort. I think it's significant that Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. So he's not only saying that God brings you comfort. Notice he's saying that God is your comfort. He is the God of all comfort. It's inherent in who he is. He, by his very nature, is comfort. Cornerstone, your God is your consolation. He is your encouragement. Whatever afflictions come from within or from without, God himself is your comfort. If you have Jesus, friend, you have everything. You have everything. It's like that song we sing, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. When the enemy accuses, Remember who God is, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave His only Son to be an advocate against those accusations. When your sin condemns you, remember that you have a Father who is the Father of mercies, who forgives all who turn to Him by faith. In all your afflictions, remember who God is, the God of all comfort. Train your soul to look to God. In the psalm that Michael read at the opening, David prayed, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Look to God. Look to who He is. And remember, your greatest need this week is to see God. You need to see him more than you need to see money. A successful job. Respect from others. You need to see God. And for that, the Bible says, you look to Christ. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to see what God is like, you look to Jesus. What the Bible says is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Who said himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Look to Jesus. Cornerstone, Jesus is your sanctuary to protect you. Jesus is the treasure to enrich you. Jesus is the physician to heal you. Jesus is the advocate to defend you. Jesus is the wisdom to counsel you. Jesus is the righteousness to justify you. Jesus is the redemption to save you. Jesus is the joy to delight you. Jesus is the peace 
to calm you. What you need this week for any trouble, any conflict, any affliction is not really to understand the matter more clearly. It's to see your God more clearly. And that's what I'll be praying for you this week. Please stand to your feet for the prayer of confession. At the end of our services, we take a moment, we go before the Lord in prayer, a prayer of confession. We recognize that through His Word, He has revealed Himself to us, and in seeing Him, we recognize that we are not like that. And so we go to Him, confessing our sins, trusting in His mercy and grace to forgive us of those sins. So would you pray with me, prayer of confession. Now, Father in heaven, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, we praise you. In your kindness, through your word, you have revealed yourself to us. And we thank you for allowing us to see you as you truly are. Lord, we confess that we are sinners, ever and always in need of your mercy and of your grace. We have received that grace this morning. Lord, we admit that we have too often neglected to see you as you truly are. We've let the world and our experience shape our beliefs about who you are. Will you forgive us of this? Will you remind us to seek you in your word this week? Will you grant that we would learn who you are from your word? And would you give us eyes to see you as we seek you? Lord, forgive us for having given up on others. We have not treated others in the way that you have treated us. Lord, we have been impatient. We have been exacting. We have been demanding. We have been without patience and grace toward one another. Toward our children. Toward our spouses. Toward our brothers and sisters. Lord, how wretched this is. To treat one another so differently than the way you have treated us. Forgive us. Will you send us your Holy Spirit this week to fill us. To enable us to remember Jesus. To look to His cross. Where our guilt was paid. Where our forgiveness was won. Where your love was poured out. And as we look to Jesus' cross. Cause the delights of God there to spill all over into others' lives. Cause our delighting in the cross of Christ to cause us to love one another like Christ. Enable us to show that love and that patience, to spend ourselves on the good of others, expecting nothing in return, forgiving quickly, repenting quickly, and being patient with all. 
Do this for Jesus' sake, we pray.